time for, I wanted to share an encouraging thing with you that happened just yesterday. Um, well, it's, been, it's actually been in progress for a while. Y'all know that uh, we've been doing the clothes closet, and uh, there was a Boy Scout troop, uh, I think uh, is a, actually a, a Lovett father, who wanted to help his son uh, do some work there for uh, maybe a merit badge or something of the sort. And they came yesterday to drop off their work, which they had been working on for months. And uh, they've created these shoe racks that probably will be around after the world is destroyed. I mean, they're quality built. And uh, so they moved them down and put them in, in there and they put the shoes on them. And I went down and introduced myself because I had not met the father or the son. And uh, the father told me, he said, uh, you know, we are so grateful for your church so grateful for what you're doing for this community, and uh, so much so that we didn't want this to be the only thing we're doing. And he handed me this envelope, and uh, he said, don't lose that envelope. And I said, trust me, I, I won't lose it. And uh, I've lost it. I don't know where that thing is. No, no. Actually, we, we got home and opened the envelope, and it is a large amount of money written out to our church to be used for however we deem necessary. I think it's in the offering plate today, so the guys are going to be up there and go, wow, who wrote that check? And it won't be anybody sitting in here. Um, but I was deeply encouraged because the community is beginning to see what we as a church are trying to do. And, uh, and it was evidenced by that. He actually said, there's a second check coming. Um, we didn't have it pulled together just yet today. And then he, he said, uh, I said, well, you know, what I'd love for y'all to do is to come on one of the days that we're doing the clothes closet so that you can see what your effort and money and all that's going towards. And he said, actually, well, I think what we'd like to do is just come and worship with you guys. So uh, I said, no, don't do that. Uh, we wouldn't want that. No. I said, that would be great. So I'm thankful for that, thankful for you and uh, so many of you that are serving in that way to help our community and, and help our church. And I just wanted to give, give you thanks. Um, as we turn to the Word, look with me at John 4, 1. Alicia just read. And as you're finding that in your Bible, just pray along with me. I believe that what the Lord has for us in the Word today could be transformational for us. And it could actually run deep and wide in our hearts and so, let me ask the Lord to be with us. Father, as we open your word, it is truly from you, your word, infallible, inerrant, and you have given it to us that we might know you. Father, I pray that you would remove me in the ways that are necessary so that your word could run, that your word could speak, that your word could convict, that your word could encourage. Do what it is that you have planned this morning through your word in your people. And uh, I pray all of this in the powerful name of Christ. Amen. You see on the screen, I've titled the sermon, Spiritual Thirst, an instinct you didn't know you lost. 
spiritual thirst, an instinct you didn't know you lost. And then there's this question right on the heels of that. And here's the question. What if our sin that we inherited from the fall, what if our sin has affected the loss of our spiritual thirst instinct and we are killing ourselves from spiritual thirst and we don't even know it? What if that is true? I believe that perhaps it is. You know, your body, our bodies, have a natural instinct to drink water. The vast majority of people not only ignore the instinct, but suppress it throughout the day, and they don't even know it. I was going for a jog several years ago, and I bet I hadn't taken 10 steps, and my calf just locked up. I had to sit down, grab my toe, pull it as hard as I could, and I thought, well, it'll, it'll be fine. I'll try to, took a few more steps, same thing. So I ended up in a physical therapist's office saying, I can't get this knot out of my calf. They worked on it, worked on it, worked on it. I went back out, ran, same thing. And uh, I could not get this thing to heal. Finally, one of the doctors said, how much water are you drinking? I said, well, truthfully, I drink a lot of coffee, but I don't drink a lot of water. And she said, I bet if you'll start drinking ever much water, you won't have this problem. And you know what? She was right. Wasn't long before I could go run, no problem, no pain. Today, most of us know that that's a good idea, that to hydrate is a good thing. You can do any kind of search on the web, and you're going to see all kinds of uh, things talking about what the benefits of proper hydration are. Some of us say we don't like water, so we drink, you know, whatever it is else that we drink. But that may not be good. Um, it is important for our bodies, since so much of our bodies are made up of water, to drink water. Now, why am I saying all that about water? Our passage talks about a spiritual water. There is a parallel between your body and physical water and your spiritual body and spiritual water. Just as our physical bodies need desperately to depend, and they depend on water and are created with a high need for it. We also were created with this all consuming instinct for spiritual water. But somehow we have learned, or we didn't have to learn, to suppress that. We run to other sources to get that need met. These other sources clearly are not the need that our true spiritual lives need. And so this situation in our text this morning with the, with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, is showing us Jesus is going to show her her true need for spiritual water. And he's going to show her spiritual thirst. And so look with me at the, the four points. Actually, there's three now. Um, I had four and I reduced it. The first one is... The unconditional, radical pursuing love of God. In John 4, 1 through 9, we see that Jesus leaves Jerusalem and he goes out and he goes through Samaria. And we're going to unpack this idea of the unconditional, radical pursuing love of God. The other two points are 
the inability of mankind to feel and identify their spiritual thirst. We see that in John 4, 10 through 15. And then the third point is how seeing our sin leads to spiritual thirst and seeing Christ. And so, start at point one there. So, picture the scene. I take off my jacket. It's a hot day. Um, Jesus is traveling with his disciples. They come to a place where there's this well, Jesus and them. They know it's Jacob's well. By the way, Jacob's well is still there after all these thousands of years, and it actually still has water in it. And if you go to the Middle East, you can actually see this well. Jesus sits down at this well, and he sees this Samaritan woman coming at the sixth hour. Now, the sixth hour, you may not know this unless you looked it up, would be about noon. And so they probably got up at sunlight. They'd been traveling all day in the hot sun. The sun is directly overhead. It's beating down. It's the sixth hour. It's noon. They're tired. And this woman is coming out in the, uh, in the midday sun to get water. Most likely, it's because she knows the immorality in her life causes her much shame if she gets the water at the same time that the other women come to the well, which they didn't really go to Jacob's well. They went to one closer in town. If they go to that well and she's there after in the cool of the evening, all the women will be there and she'll be scorned. She'll be mocked. So she goes midday to a further well so that she can draw her water without all of the embarrassment. And so Jesus speaks to her and he says, can you give me some water? Now, what's interesting about that text is men did not speak to women in public, not even husbands to wives in public in that culture in that day. And Jews certainly did not speak to Samaritans. So you got two strikes. And then a rabbi, who Jesus was certainly considered a teacher, they did not typically speak publicly to people that were immoral. So you got three strikes, and Jesus is still speaking to this woman. You know, in baseball, it's three strikes and you're out. She had at least three strikes. She's a woman. She's a Samaritan. She's sexually immoral. God either doesn't know about baseball yet, because think about it, it hadn't been created. But then again, oh yeah, God's omniscient, isn't it? He probably did know about baseball, and he knew the rules. But he clearly had a different set of guiding principles for who he associated with. Jesus, I mean, excuse me, Jews avoided Samaritans, but Jesus did not. I agree. That's the amen from the smallest one. The key verse for the background of this relationship in verse 9 is the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan? Why is that such a key point? Don Carson, theologian, author, 
he says this, and this is important to catch if you're going to understand the context of what's going on here with this woman and with Jesus. This is what Don Carson says. After the Assyrians captured Samaria, the capital, which was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, in 722 B.C. So in 722 B.C., the Assyrians capture the capital and they deport all of Israel's important people, all the people of substance. And they settled the land with foreigners. So you got all these Israelites, the Assyrians come in and they take them all away, right? And then... The people that are left, the Israelites that are left, they're not of big reputation. They're not Sanhedrin. They're not Pharisees. They're not the well-educated. The people that are left begin to intermarry with the people that are around that area. And then after the exile, Jews return to their homeland, Jerusalem, and they begin to view the Samaritans not only as children of political rebels because of the deportation from the Assyrians, but also as racial, they're they're half Jewish. They're not fully Jewish. And so that creates both a, a political separation and then also an ethnic separation. And so the Jews begin to view these people, these Samaritans, as less than They're not pure-blooded Israelites. And so it's interesting because at about 400 B.C., the Samaritans decide they're actually coming back to Yahweh, the Israelite God, and they, in in Ezra 4.1, they come to the Jews and they say, can we help you rebuild the temple? Because remember, all of them were taken away and the temple was destroyed. Now they're coming back and they say, can we help you rebuild the temple? You know what the Israelites tell them? <laughs> no way. We're not, gonna, we're not messing with you. And so later in our text, this Samaritan woman says, you know, y'all worship in Jerusalem. We worship on Mount Gesim, which is right. And basically Jesus says, you're missing the whole point. It's not about mountains. It's about fountains. And he goes in and he explains about this fountain of living water. So she's talking about one mountain. The Jews are thinking about this other mountain because they built a temple. But in the, in the intertestamal period, there was 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. During that time, the Jews came in and destroyed the Samaritan's temple. So they really liked each other. They were buddy-buddy. And, uh, and all that was going on. So the Jews were saying by their actions, and I'm sure often probably by their words, these people, these Samaritans, aren't as valuable as we Israelites. You can see that the slippery slope that the Jewish people were on, they'd been told their whole life in, over in the Old Testament, don't intermarry with anybody that's not an Israelite. Don't intermarry with these Gentiles. So for hundreds of years, that's been beat into their minds. And now they have this group of Israelites who have done just that, and they're all living in one area. And so they're called Samaritans, and the Jews learned to hate them. And they had all these rivalries going on about their temples. 
And all that is the background. So, this way of thinking is not foreign to us in the U.S., I don't think. The majority culture, naturally, due to our sin nature, has a primitive way of doing life where we, f- we feel better about ourselves if there's this other group that's less than us. And we can often figure out a way to consider them less than us. Take, for example, in the U.S. today, there is uh, a lot of this still happening. A lot of it happened uh, 60, 75, 80 years ago. But an attempt to bring this kind of into our world, the Israelites and the Samaritans, let me bring it into our world. Just 60 years ago, and a lot of you here remember this, you lived this. Just 60 years ago in the U.S., there would, you know, you'd walk up into a federal building or a government building, and there would be a sign, and they had already actually run the water spouts and the, all of the plumbing so that there was two, two fountains, one that said whites, one that said coloreds. Not that long ago. I mean, some of you can remember that for sure. And so what our country was doing was we were going to great extent to keep the races separated. The Israelites and the Samaritans did the very same thing. So it's not that foreign to us. But in our story, it is as if Jesus, let's say there's two fountains right here. And there's the Jewish fountain and the Samaritan fountain. But for our story's sake, let's say whites and coloreds. And Jesus walks up to this well, and instead of going here, he goes here. And not only does he go here, but when he sees this dark-skinned woman, let's say, to put it in our American context, When he sees this black woman, he says, can you give me a drink? Could you imagine if a president from the United States in 1930 walked up to a fountain when it clearly said whites and coloreds, and instead of going here, he goes here, and then he asked that black woman to give him a drink from her cup? What would the crowd say? What would the crowd be thinking in that moment? The reason I make this point is that's what the disciples were thinking. What are you doing talking to this Samaritan woman? One, it's a woman. Two, she's not just any woman. She's a Samaritan woman. And then three, unbeknownst to them probably at this point, she's had five husbands. And so, if you look with me, though, Galatians, I invite you to turn there. I don't have it written in my notes, so I'm going to turn there, too. But uh, I want you to see this in Galatians 3, 26 through 29. Galatians 3, 26 through 29. 
This is what it says there in Galatians 3, 26 through 29. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You see, the Israelites were thinking, we're Israelites. We're God's chosen people. And when Jesus goes to the colored thing, what he's telling us and the world is it ain't about race. It ain't about color. It ain't about being an Israelite. It is about knowing him and having a relationship with the God of the universe. And those are the people, I love that it finishes, those are the sons of Abraham. So what I conclude is, I'm an Israelite. I'm a son of Abraham. Now, y'all know, looking at my complexion, I wasn't probably born anywhere near the Middle East. You know? But I am a son of Abraham. You, if you are a believer, are a son and daughter of Abraham. It has nothing to do with color. As a matter of fact, to just take it one step further, I would say Jesus loves diversity. He loves it. Why else would he create it? Why else? He loves it. He likes men. He likes women. He likes black. He likes white. He likes all colors because he sees it as beautiful. And he, he, he not only tolerates, but he rejoices in the diversity of his creation. He loves it. He loves it. And so he goes to this woman. You know, it's interesting. Jesus should have went to the Jews, right? To the Jews first. You know who he's revealing the kingdom of God to? A Samaritan woman who also is loose immorally. It's crazy. Jesus is just blowing paradigms and his guys are like, whoa, what are you doing, dude? You're not here to do this. And Jesus is saying, no, I've been about this from the very beginning. The whole reason I raised up Israel was so that this day could come to pass. It's not about being an ethnic Jew. It's about being in my family. And I'm going after those the Father has sent me to go after. So clearly, clearly on the mind of Jesus, when they left Jerusalem that day, you know what Jesus was probably thinking about? He was thinking, I got to go through Samaria. The Father has told me there is a woman in Samaria who is supposed to be his. And so from the beginning, before the earth was created, Jesus is on a mission Go through Samaria, go to Jacob's well, sit down at the well and speak to that woman because that is God's 
woman. God wants to work in her heart. And so I'm going to blow paradigms and I'm going to speak to this woman. And if you follow the rest of the story, which we're not going to get into today, she goes out and becomes an evangelist and lots of Samaritans come to Christ because of this woman. And so Jesus goes to them. And you know, it's funny. I'm sure along the way, somewhere his disciples go, you know, we don't have to go through Samaria. It's a little bit longer route, but we could go around. And, uh, and what if we get to Samaria and, and we're mugged? Or worse, you know, the, the Samaritan dude, the good Samaritan almost got killed. What if we go through there and they kill us? And I'm telling you, Jesus was losing sleep over this. I mean, he was upset. He said, when he got there to the well, y'all go find food. I'm going to stay here by myself. He must have really been worried about it, you know. I'm going to stay here all by myself so that I can have this private conversation with this woman that I've been needing to have since the foundation of the world. Y'all go and get food. I'm so worried about getting mugged and murdered here that I'm just sending you all off. He could have kept two of his biggest thugs and said, y'all guys stand here and protect me while I talk to this woman. No. Everybody, go get food. I got something to say. You know why? Because when it got right down to it, he knew he was going to have to say some hard things. And he didn't want everybody to hear it. I believe that it was important to Jesus when it got time to create the thirst in her. He wanted it to just be the two of them. He was going to speak into her soul. So, first point. This is the unconditional, radically pursuing love of God on display for her, but for us as well. You know, when God met me, there was shame in my life. There was sin in my life. There, there was things in my life that I would never stand up here and tell you. It's so shameful and it's so embarrassing, and it's so sinful, and you're thinking, but you're the pastor. Yeah, but I'm a huge sinner. I mean, I'm not just saying that. I'm a, I'm a real sinner with a real sin problem. And when God sought me out, when he came to where I was like he came to her, he spoke some things into my heart that I'm going to share about her that changed everything. You see, I didn't know how spiritual thirsty I was. My sin condition had left me just like my question. What if our sin has affected the loss of your spiritual thirst instinct and we're killing ourselves from thirst and don't even know it? I think it's true. I think our sin has stopped us from being spiritually thirsty. So we can go to church and we can go through our day and we don't even feel an urge to drink spiritually. It's not even there. We're just, it's just not existing. So number two, transitioning. The inability of mankind to feel and identify their spiritual thirst. Look with me at John 4, 10 through 15. Look at this dialogue. It says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God 
and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. (laughs) She's still thinking on a physical level. She's not thinking on a soul, spiritual level. She's still thinking just about physical things. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water, of the well, drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Listen to what she says. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's still thinking, you got some kind of magic water for my physical thirst. I don't want to keep having to come out here in the middle of the day in the heat of the sun to this well where I could see somebody that would embarrass me. Please give me this water. Please give me what I need physically. We too seem to mostly think about our physical needs. And emotionally, we we don't make the connection to our spiritual thirst. In our minds, it's like this. Give me a healthy, functional body. Give me health, a healthy savings account and some real financial security. Give me a great public reputation where people think highly of me and of my family. Man, if I got those things and maybe a few others I'll throw in, I'll be great. This life will be incredible. But I would say it like this. At what expense will you give up for those things? What if you get everything you want physically, financially, socially, and your deepest needs, your spiritual thirst goes unquenched? As a result of ease and comfort, you perish in hell for all eternity. I'm not just saying that. Mark 8, 36 says, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You see what I'm saying, y'all, is could it be that you're suffering? Could it be that your trials, could it be that your difficulties are pointing You to a spiritual thirst that desperately needs water. Could our healing, our our spiritual healing, really come from a physical or financial brokenness? Is that what it would take, perhaps, for us to realize the thirst that is really there? Does that not make us desperate for soul water? See, we're not talking about body water. Jesus is talking about 
a soul water. And when we have all of our needs met in this life, those typically turn out to be some of the worst people because there's no brokenness. There's no humility. There's no sense of need. And so could our financial stress or emotional instability or physical health be driving us to the well of living water? I say yes. I say yes. And praise be to God that my life doesn't work perfectly. Praise be to God that my left knee is beginning to be arthritic and it causes me pain. Praise be to God that I know one day I'm going to die. Praise be to God that he keeps revealing to me over and over and over again, Clint, this life is not about you. It's about me. And it's about my glory. And when you can finally get your heart and you can begin to drink this soul water, you will begin to realize the beauty of that. The beauty it is to be near me, to know me, to be in my presence for one day is better than a lifetime outside of his presence. So, Third point and final. How seeing our sin leads to spiritual thirst and seeing the Christ. And four, 16 through 19, if you would look with me, let's read that together. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Oh, excuse me, y'all. I'm still over in Galatians. Um, Not that that was bad, but it just wasn't what we were supposed to be reading. Uh, 4, 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now <clears throat> have is not your husband. What you, what you have said is true. The woman said to him. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I bet she does perceive he's a prophet at that point. You know, I think that God is speaking with a megaphone through her pain into her suffering. And he's trying to create a spiritual thirst. He's trying to help her see, do you know why you have five husbands? Because your, thir your soul is starving. You're thirsty and you're looking for it through sex and relationship and someone to love you. And it's not going to deliver. It hasn't delivered with the first four. What makes you think it's going to deliver with this fifth one? You see, what Jesus is doing is he's going after the heart. He's going after what's underneath. She keeps talking about this stuff out here. And he keeps going, boop, boop, down here. Like, 
Why did, he, why did he leave the water thing? Why did he leave the living water? You know why he left the living water? She wasn't connecting the dots. So he says, go get your husband. And we hadn't even heard about a husband in this whole dialogue. I mean, that's just random. It's like, go get your husband. But it wasn't random, was it? He knew she was going to have to say, well, I don't really have a husband. Right, you say, you have five. And the one you're with now isn't your husband. You see what he did? He went after her sin. And you know what God does with us? He goes after our sin. Because when he goes after your sin, it creates spiritual thirst. Because then you realize, I really don't just need, which is the wealth, health, prosperity gospel. I don't need to just feel better about myself. I don't need to just think, Clint, you're a good guy. Think positive thoughts, riding down the road, listening to podcasts going, you're a good guy. Think positive thoughts. No, my problem is I'm a sinner and my sin is going to separate me from God for all eternity. I have real problems and it's sin. And God is a holy God. And so what Jesus does is the greatest, friendliest, kindest, loving thing he can do is he says, go get your husband. And when he does it, it's like to the heart. He just nailed her sin. Now she's like, she's still diverting though. She's still diverting. She says, I I take it you're a prophet. She doesn't want to go there. She can't go there. You know why she can't go there? Just the same reason I can't go there and you can't go there. Our sin makes us feel shameful. It makes us feel guilty. And so what we do is we kind of lock it up. We kind of isolate it. And we put it in this secret place in our life. And you know what that does? When we lock and seal our our sin away over here, we cut ourselves off from God first and foremost. But then we also cut ourselves off from each other. Because I've got things I've got to hide. I got to compartmentalize them. I got to lock them up under pad and key so that y'all can't see that part of me. Because if you see that part of me, you're not going to like it. It ain't pretty. So you know what Jesus does? He goes, you know, I think I got a key for this. It's a prophetic key. Let me see. Oh, there it is. And he goes to her heart with this prophetic key. He sticks it in there and he says, I'm unlocking this door. Go get your husband. I don't have a husband. Oh, yeah, you do. What? is the prophetic word into your heart. Where is the sin that you're hiding from God, first and foremost, but also from the church, God's people? You're hiding behind these walls. And it's as long as we hide behind these walls, we live in a self-made prison. We put ourselves in and under lock and key. And we can't be ourselves. And you know what happens to a soul that can't be itself? It begins to die. I want to be known. 
You want to be known, and that's the gospel. You can be known and loved unconditionally. That's what Jesus did when he came to the woman at the well. He pursued her at the deepest level. He revealed to her her spiritual thirst, and he gave her eternal life. Your your problem is not that you're not good enough. You might be good. But the truth is, the Bible says none of us are good. And the truth is, you got a gaping wound called a sin problem. And until that sin problem is made right by trusting Christ, the living water, to come in. And here's the thing about the water, y'all. One drink of the true living water, and from you will flow fountains of living water for a lifetime what that means is she's got to come back to jesus and say you're right i don't have one husband you're right i need this living water please give me this water and so there is there is no woman can have five men like this and not have a thirsty, hungry, raped soul. Jesus graciously wants to help her out of that prison. Free from shame, free from guilt, but mostly he frees her from the damning sin that leaves her estranged from a loving, holy God and the sin that would condemn her for eternity in hell. God, Jesus, goes after this person. In conclusion, it reminds me of Jeremiah 2, 13. God said this, My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water. They've forsaken that. And they've tried to dig their own cisterns. Cisterns were buckets of water. Broken cisterns that cannot hold water. What about you? Have you forsaken the spring of living water? Are you trying to dig your own cisterns? Financial security, physical health, emotional well-being, social status, All those are today's cisterns. I'm trying to find life somewhere other than the living water. Because I'll tell you, you may do fine. You may make it all the way through this life with your broken cisterns. But at the end, there's still one real problem. We are separated from a holy God because of our sin. Just like the woman at the well. And all your sisters won't fix that. Only the living water can fix that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. May it run deep, full, and rich into the lives of your people. I pray that if there be here, be someone here that doesn't know you, that they would step out of eternity of darkness and into the light, even this day. 
I pray all of this in